everybody. This is Nevin Adams, Chief Content Officer of the American Retirement Association, back again with none other than Mr. Fred Reich. Hello, Fred. Happy New Year. <laughs> Nevin, thank you very much. Uh, I, I think we're going to have a really good program today. There's a big decision that just came down from the Supreme Court. And why don't you lead us off on that? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, you know, I remember you and I were talking at the tail end of the year about this case. It just had oral arguments like in the first part of December. And the, the thinking then was, well, we'd hear from the Supreme Court sometime in June. Um, so we had a lot of time to sort of think about it and ponder it and worry. It. And then, boom, <laughs> yesterday, the decision comes back from the Supreme Court. It's a big deal. It's it's a it's a 403B plan, but it's an excessive fee case. It's one brought by the Schlichter law firm out of St. Louis, Missouri. They've obviously, you know, they they created or invented this business of excessive fee litigation. They've been doing it um, since like 2006. Um, and the 403B case is later than that. But again, it's all kind of balled into the same thing. And the arguments that are used in the Northwestern case have been been very similar to the arguments that have been been used and spread across um, lots of different excessive fee cases, not just by the Schlichter firm, but by a lot of other law firms now. They're kind of copycatting their way way into this thing. Um, but ultimately, and, and this was a case that the Schlichter law firm said was having a chilling effect, which, you know, lawyers love the chilling effect. Um, it's, it's almost like the fruit of the forbidden tree. Um, but the chilling effect basically means is it, it was keeping a lot of these cases, or some of these cases anyway, from getting past that motion to dismiss, where the defendants in the case basically say, you haven't, you haven't presented enough of an argument to take this thing to trial. We're going to dismiss it without without even having to bother with that, without going through discovery or anything. Or you you haven't made enough case to make this worth a trial. Um, so that was the deal here. It was decided in favor of the fiduciary defendants at Northwestern at the district court level. It was supported at the appellate court level. And then of course it was brought, you know, appealed up to the Supreme Court for a determination on what, you know, where was the level in terms of this burden of proof. Um, you know, who, who has to bear that burden? Is it on the plaintiffs? Uh, you know, once they've alleged that there's an issue going on here, you know, do they have to do anything more with it? Or is it on the defendants? Um, before I launch into that, Fred, do you want to, you know, weigh in on any of this background stuff I've layered in? Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it's an interesting issue technically, Nevin. The planned fiduciaries have control of a lot of the information. You have to think of what information do the participants have? Well, uh, probably the main thing they have is their 4045 investment chart, which shows the investments, the share classes, expense ratios, and and so on. Maybe if it's a larger plan, they've got the uh, accountant's report attached to the 5500 that has similar information. And that's it. They, they don't know what process the fiduciary is actually engaged in. So they have to go to court in, in terms of filing a complaint with a limited amount of information. And this issue is really how much is enough. Obviously, they can't go in and just say, oh, man, the plan committee, were they were bad guys and they did a lousy job. That, that won't get your complaint to trial. Uh, on the other hand, they can't come in and say, well, you, you, know, you met uh, only three times over the last 10 years and you didn't keep minutes and you didn't have an IPS and on and on because they don't know all that. So what, what we all thought the Supreme Court was going to do uh, and obviously, by the fact I've expressed it that way, it means they didn't. Um, 
we all thought they were going to say, okay, here's the line. You have to plead at least so much in your complaint in order for that complaint to stand up and to proceed. Uh, you know, you go on to discovery, class certification, and so on. There's a whole bunch that happens after that. But if your complaint doesn't stand up, nothing happens. So we thought the Supreme Court was going to come down and say, here's where you draw the line. If they drew it way over in favor of fiduciaries, it would have a chilling effect on folks like Schlichter if, and participants. If they drew it way over in the participants' line, their side, then there would be a lot of frivolous lawsuits going forward. So that that's really where we all thought the rubber was going to hit the road. And that's a good place for me to kick it back to you, Nevin. So talk about the rubber hitting the road. Yeah, well, it didn't it didn't quite get the traction that, as you said, I think we'd, we'd all been hoping for. I think, you know, the, the thing is, I think whether it comes to, to regulation or litigation, where everybody's looking for that that bright line, right? That's another legal term, that bright line. So that if you're a planned fiduciary and you're worried about things like personal liability or you're an advisor as a fiduciary working with somebody, you kind of want to know where the line is so you can avoid stepping over it accidentally so that you know where the where the boundaries are. And no, we didn't we didn't get that. Now, what's there, there are a lot of things that were interesting about this. Um, first of all, it was a unanimous decision. And there's a lot made of the split court and the conservatives and the liberals and things like that. And and people who pay attention to the court's decisions on other than the big social issues might be surprised to learn that unanimous decisions are not really all that odd. Um, now, if you listen to the oral arguments in this case of the first part of December, as I did, or read the transcripts of the oral arguments in December, which I also did and wrote about, you'd be surprised that somehow in the course of several weeks, all of that chatter found its way to come together in terms of a unanimous decision, uh, which was authored by Justice Sotomayor. Um, which again, and if you read those, you know, listen to the oral arguments, you know that you could tell at the outset that, that she was skeptical about the arguments that were being made, unlike a lot of the ones that are on the conservative side. So when I saw that, that she authored the opinion, I thought, well, okay, I can figure out how it's coming out. But I was surprised that it was unanimous, um, at least until I actually saw what the decision seemed to be. And then as you and I were talking earlier, it's like, well, that doesn't seem all that controversial at all. Um, and I'm gonna try and restate it, although I'll probably get it wrong, Fred. So so I know I can count on you to keep me in, in, in my bright line, um, which is the idea that, that there's a duty on the part of the fiduciary to monitor all the funds on their menu, right? I mean, I don't think she said it quite that succinctly, but that's that's the essence of the decision, right? When she's saying, because they kicked it back to the Seventh Circuit and it was like, okay, folks, you know, you, you made a decision based on flawed reasoning. In fact, I think she called it flawed reasoning and, and said, instead, you should be applying this standard, which she hearkened back to the Tibble case, which is that there's this duty to monitor the investments. And what she basically said was, you all said they didn't have, if they give them enough choices, they don't have to monitor every investment. But she said you do. Now, I don't think that's controversial. What do you think, Fred? Um, you know, it's interesting. It, it, um, to put a little more context on it, this, there were two record-keeping platforms at Northwestern, and there were over 400 investment options. And sort of what the, I mean, sort of what the, fifth, the Seventh Circuit rather said was, 
Well, gee, out of over 400, there must be some good ones in there. It's up to the participants to figure out which ones are good, and then they can invest in those. And so when, when Sotomayor came back and said, wait a second, under Tibble versus Edison International, we said there is a duty to monitor all of the investments that are being offered to participants. And you, the Seventh Circuit, failed to follow our prior Supreme Court decision. Uh, and, you know, just think about over 400 investment options on the platform that now have to be monitored and reviewed. And, and maybe there's an investment consultant, hopefully there is, that is going to assist them in doing that. Uh, so I think, I think uh, first off, I don't think it's surprising to most people. I think where there are uh, you know, hundreds of investments on the platform, it could be surprising as they really get into what monitoring means and looking at the expense ratios, doing comparative analysis. Do, do you have the right share class? I mean, um, so... Yeah, I, 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 by the way, just one, one thing, one of the reasons that they focused on monitoring rather than selection in the language of this decision was that some of the investments had been in the plan for more than six years. And so they could no longer challenge the initial selection of those many of the 400 investments. Six, six years, of so course, were, being the risk of statute of limitations. We ought to just mention that. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, so, and Tibble was somewhat the same way. It was about, uh, Tibble was about retail share classes versus institutional share classes. Uh, and there are many of them have been selected more than six years ago. So they had to look at what was on the menu now. But no, I think to the industry at large, to ERISA attorneys, to investment advisors and others in the uh, 401k and 403b industry. Um, no, I don't think it's particularly surprising to get back to your basic question, Nevin. Uh, and I do think it's going to heighten the awareness of uh fiduciaries where they are offering a large number, or at least it should, of investment options. And, and uh, probably one of the outcomes will be they'll narrow down the number of investments being offered. So uh, not speaking to Northwestern directly, because I don't know what they did. They may have done a perfectly fine job of, of selecting and monitoring. But thinking about 400 investment options more generally, um, I think that as committees do more and more close monitoring generally, that they'll probably reduce that down maybe to 25, 30, 40 on each platform if they have more than one platform. Uh, so I see that as a practical outcome of this. Well, let's talk for a second because there was another reference that Justice Sotomayor made that um, was kind of interesting and something the commentators that have had a chance to weigh in on this so far, including yours truly, have, have focused in on. And that's this notion of a context-specific focus. How, how do you read that? How do you see that applying to this determination of, of prudent monitoring of the portfolio? Yeah, I'm I'm reading less into that than other people. I, I, I think that they're saying, I think what's intended by that is that uh, the situations of different plans can be different and you have to look at the facts and circumstances of the particular plan. Uh, so which if, if that's what's intended, facts and circumstances, well, yeah, sure. A billion dollar plan can get some very inexpensive investments. A million dollar plan can't. They're retail. Uh, so I think, I think you know, it, it's what's available, what can you do, uh, just getting into, I think what they were saying is 
we think it needs a more granular analysis than we're going to do here at the Supreme Court. So we're referring it back for a more granular look, more detailed look at the issues. If that's the case, I wouldn't be surprised if the Seventh Circuit ref remanded it back to the trial court uh, to, in effect, maybe they clarified some guidance, but then remanded it back. Because even courts of appeals aren't well suited for granular, you know, really detailed level analysis. That, that's what trial courts do, not appeals courts. Sure. Well, and, and I suppose a, a little bit to your point earlier, I mean, I think I think the Supreme Court's issue with the Seventh Circuit's decision was they said it's not necessarily that the decision, I mean, the decision might hold. But what what she's saying is you you've made that decision based on flawed reasoning, on flawed logic and and maybe dismissed it too quickly. In other words, now apply this this other standard you know, this responsibility to monitor. And maybe to your point, if the court says, oh, well, the fiduciaries did, they did monitor it and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, at some level, the, the case might still come out the same way, but, but on a different logic. Um, I'll tell you, when this thing came out, well, let me step back. One of the other cases that was mentioned here was the famous slash infamous Hecker v. Deer. One of the very first cases that the Schlichter Law Firm filed back in, I, I think it was 2006 it was filed. And I remember when the decision came out from, from the district court there, which is the same, the same court we're talking about here. It was, a, it was a portfolio of all Fidelity funds, and they had a self-directed brokerage account. And ultimately, and, and choice came up a lot in the oral arguments with the Supreme Court, the idea that, that if, you, if you give people enough, it doesn't matter if you have bad, if there are bad things on the menu, as long as you give them good choices also, you know, then you're okay. And in the... Yeah, that was the seventh circuit. Right. Yeah. And the, and the yeah. Deere Court basically seemed to say, well, and that in this case is the self-directed brokerage account. To the extent that participants don't like the fidelity funds they're being directed to or the class of fidelity shares that they have an option to, they can always basically take their ball and go play in the self-directed brokerage account. Um, and that was enough for the Deere case to come out um, in favor of the, the fiduciary defendants here. I, I thought that was kind of a head scratcher at the time. I thought, well, in fact, I wrote a column that ended up getting cited in an amicus brief by the Department of Labor later on, where I basically said, hey, if, if based on this, if I was advising plan sponsors how to avoid this, I'd basically just add a self-directed brokerage. Account. That appears to be enough, you know, to, to, to solve all your problems. Well, um, clearly it's not. And, and just as clearly, um, Deere, had it gotten to the Supreme Court, would probably have, have been bounced back. Um, because that they were they were leaning on this kind of logic even more so than were the uh, the defendants in the Northwestern case. Yeah, I agree, enough. And I, 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 in fact, I mean, you could almost look at Sotomayor's opinions being a slapdown of the Deer case. Uh, you know, it. it, it uh, oh, it it's hard yeah, not this, to see that as a you guys screwed this one up too. But <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely, and. So, you know, it's, it's interesting. A couple interesting issues. One is, um, I don't think the, the, the Northwestern argued that, hey, wait a second, 400 is equivalent to a, a mutual fund window that we didn't really designate investments. But then the question becomes, 
when is a window a window and when is a lineup a lineup? <laughs> and I, I know at least one case in which a court said about 100 was, was a lineup, not a window. So it's 400. I mean, now in the, in, the, in the Deer case, I think the window, there was a mutual fund window that had 1,000 to 2,000 mutual funds it in it. It was big. A lot. It was big. It was big. Now that, I think, pretty clearly is a brokerage account or a window or whatever you want to call it. And, you, and therefore, the individual investments are not designated investment alternatives that have to be prudently selected and monitored. So that's sort of a, I, I wouldn't get too cute with arguing that a couple hundred is a window for because you're, you're still walking on thin ice at that level, but there is that argument. The other thing I, that, you know, the, the DOL's ESG regulation, both the Trump era version and the Biden era version, talks in terms of a best investment option in each, more or less in each investment category. And, and for example, it says that very, there will almost always be one investment of a particular type that, it, that the committee determines based on material factors related to risk and return, it promises the best risk and return equation for the participants going forward. Then the DOL on the regulation says in both cases, but in some cases, if there may be a tie. Well, how do you take that concept of a best and a tie and then apply it to 400 mutual funds? I mean, you can't get there. We've got, we've got these two scenarios and I'm not saying I agree with the DOL. I, I, my personal view is that when you when you do an analysis, let's say of large cap growth mutual funds, you could find 20, 30, 40, 50. I don't know how many lots that are that are that could be prudently selected. Their expense ratios are reasonable. The quality of management is good, and and they offer good investment processes for the participants going forward. So I think I disagree with the DOL on this concept of best, but I. But I also do think there needs to be some winnowing by investment category. I mean, we're all now captives to the Morningstar style box. Uh, but anyway, based on something similar to the Morningstar style box, you would do want, and that's diverse. That's that diverse lineup that we're talking about that allows participants to uh, build portfolios in their own accounts that properly reflect their need for return and their tolerance for risk. I mean, that's a fallacy too, by the way. We don't think most participants know how to do that. But nonetheless, that diverse lineup and selecting superior investments in each category in the lineup will get you to some number um, that I think is, is, can reasonably be uh, monitored from year to year, you know, closely scrutinized every year within, with a reasonable effort where lots and lots and lots might of investment options might take lots and lots and lots of effort to monitor. So I, I, that's why I say I think the effect of this will be to limit the number of investments offered uh, going forward by some of these plans that have the, the big lineups. Yeah. Well, certainly it's a challenge, again, depending on how you want to define monitoring to obviously the, the bigger the net, the harder, more complicated, more time consuming it would be to monitor, in fact, those funds. But, um, but with automation, technology, um, a well-articulated IPS, um, you know, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I agree and I disagree. Uh, you know, when we first put in a 401k plan in my little law firm, back then I was with a little law firm about 25 years ago, uh, 
we we put in a hundred funds because we were all for choice. Uh, then a year later, we sat down to monitor them, and it it's not as easy as I thought it would be. There were some that clearly shouldn't have been included, others that clearly should have been, uh, but there were a lot in between that were like close calls and. Over time, we gradually got it down to a manageable level of 20 or 30 funds, but 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 it was harder than I thought it would be, Nevin. It it, it didn't come easily. There were a lot of judgment calls involved and and different committee members with different preferences and you know, you know how humans are. Well, Fred, they that probably was before there was an internet, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now you get to call each other nasty names remotely. Yeah, there you go. Uh, so, well, it, I mean, that's a good point. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Do you see any implications for target date funds and the monitoring there? I mean, again, I keep thinking that the duty to monitor the funds that are on your menu is not really controversial, um, shouldn't be controversial. Um, and target date funds, obviously, the same thing would apply, but is there an, an issue for what's going on underneath the target date fund itself? Uh, you know, there there have been, I mean, there's some cases where target date funds are are assembled mm -hmm. rather than prepackaged. For example, in the Intel case recently, where they had hedge funds and private equity funds in their target date fund, uh, they got sued because it underperformed what the plaintiff's attorneys thought was an appropriate benchmark. They won because they had prudent processes and they knew what they were doing. Uh, so... Uh, you know, I think it's going to be, and then you, so now you look there and you, you take that thinking over to a prepackaged target date fund. And in theory, every investment option in the prepackaged target date fund should be reasonably priced and prudently selected and monitoring. I don't know that of anybody who's actually looking at it that way, though. I'm sure there's somebody somewhere, but I haven't seen it. Uh, I would guess if a target date fund dramatically underperformed, you only have two ways to challenge it. One is the asset allocation. The other is lousy investments were included. Um, in that case, yeah, I, I would guess that there could be a lawsuit. And I don't know what the outcome would be. There have been lawsuits about target date fund families. It usually goes to bad performance and um, a lack of um, history to base anything, any decision on, so, and proprietary. So there are a lot of, and, and those things have all showed up in these other lawsuits as well. So in some sense, there's there's no magic to a target date fund in terms of the things that you need to look out for and the things you need to monitor. Um, and <laughs> said another way, the things you could be sued for. Because there's no real, uh, there's no bulletproof vest there. It's, uh, it's all falls under that broad category of things you need to be prudent about. Um, in fact, the, the takeaway for me, ultimately, from, from all of this, including our discussion today, is that, that you've got to have a good fiduciary process. Um, it's got to be, you know, we've said this before. We've said it consistently. You need, you need to have a good process. It needs to take into account cost. It needs to take into account performance. It needs to um, be documented, and it needs to be followed consistently. Um, and having said that, since Fred, this like is in your blood, you've probably got a more eloquent way to say it. But uh, no, no, but isn't you that did. It? You did a nice job. Uh, but I think that process. The, there's the Aon case recently that that 
the Aon one, there's the American Century case before that. Mm -hmm. If you look at these cases that, that the plan committees or the advisors have won, it, it's because of the process. They've got a good, strong process. They've vetted things. And, and you know, even though it's the big liability or big settlement cases that make the headlines, there are other cases out there like the ones that Nevin and I are referring to that really show the process. And yes, it should be documented. Uh, and IPS is evidence of a prudent procedure. Using an investment consultant is evidence of a prudent procedure. Having regular meetings is evidence of a prudent procedure. And the NYU case illustrates that having someone on the committee who may be a pain in the neck to the advisor is part of a prudent process because the, the chief investment officer at NYU would question the advisor. Why are you recommending that? Tell me more about it. Justify your recommendation. I'm sure the advisor sat there and thought, you know, what is this? You know, I'm an and, expert. And, Why am I being challenged? And she wasn't even a lawyer, Fred. No, but, <laughs> but she saved the day for NYU because she showed that the committee, or at least some of the committee members, did a diligent job. You can, And every court has said you cannot rely blindly on your consultant. You have to understand why they're making the recommendation, and then you have to decide whether you agree with it or not. So while I, I, I'm making it up that, that the advisor may have felt that she was a pain in the neck, but but I, I just, I, you know, I almost have a little movie reel playing in my head of what those meetings were like. And, because, and she's actually you've been you've been that person. I know you, <laughs> you've been that person. I've certainly admonished people to behave that way. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, but but that's turned out to be the advisor's greatest ally, that person that yeah. really wanted to know. No, absolutely. And, and the, honestly, and I know of this anecdotally, there are a number of cases out there. Uh, that people have shared with me that that don't even get to the suit because those good processes are, or processes are in place and because there's an opportunity to bring in their counsel in time to sort of front end that and basically say, you don't want to waste your time here. Um, and and it's kept the case from even being filed. So we never hear about those. So uh, congratulations to all of you out there listening who have or are in the process of putting in these good good practices. That's both good for the plan. That's consistent with the responsibilities you have a plan fiduciary. And you're making the plaintiff's bar go look other places to go make their living. So good for you. Um, Fred, wow. Good start to 2022. All right. We said when we wrap things up that it was going to be a busy year. True enough. Here we are, and early. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think people should take this decision to heart. I think they should work with plan committees to, you know, make sure they really understand their obligations. As I look at the cases where they didn't have a prudent process, I wonder why the committee didn't understand what a, that they were fiduciaries. Uh, I mean, the basic, just basic stuff like you are a fiduciary. And why they didn't have training on what that meant, or if they just ignored it. We'll never know being outside looking in. They need but, to be listening to the Nevin and yeah. Fred podcast. Then they would know. <laughs> then they would know. Thank you, Nevin. <laughs> okay. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being with us. Spread the word. Like, share, uh, email your friends. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about. Have a great day, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.